Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois. We are beginning chapter 12 entitled, entitled of Alexander Crumb. Then from the dawn it seemed there came, but faint, as from beyond the limit of the world, like the last echo born of a great cry, sounds, as if some fair city were one voice, around a king returning from his wars. Tennyson. This is the history of a human heart, the tale of a black boy who many long years ago began to struggle with life that he might know the world and know himself. Three temptations he met on those dark dunes that lay gray and dismal before the wonder eyes of the child. The temptation of hate, that stood out against the red dawn, the temptation of despair, that darkened noonday, and the temptation of doubt, that ever steals along with twilight. Above all, you must hear of the veils he crossed, the valley of humiliation and the valley of the shadow of death. I saw Alexander Crummel first at a Wilberforce commencement season amid its bustling crush. Tall, frail, and black, he stood with simple dignity and an unmistakable air of good breeding. I talked with him apart, where the storming of the lusty young orders cannot harm us. I spoke to him politely, then curiously, then eagerly, as I began to feel the fineness of his character, his calm courtesy, the sweetness of his strength, and his fair blending of the hope and truth of life. Instinctively, I bow before this man as one bows before the prophets of the world. Some seer he seemed that came not from the crimson past or the gray to come, but from the pulsing now, that mocking world which seemed to me at once so light and dark, so splendid and sordid. Fourscore years had he wandered in this same world of mine within the veil. He was born with the Missouri Compromise, and lay a-dying amid the echoes of Manila and El Caney. Stirring times for living, times dark to look upon, darker to look forward to. The black-faced lad that paused over his mud and marble 70 years ago saw puzzling vistas as he looked down the world. The slave ship still groaned across the Atlantic, faint cries burdened the southern breeze, and the great black father whispered mad tales of cruelty into those young ears. From the low doorway, the mother silently watched her boy at play, and at nightfall sought him eagerly lest the shadows bear him away to the land of slaves. So his young mind worked and winced and shaped curiously a vision of life. And in the midst of that vision ever stood one dark figure alone, ever with the hard, thick countenance of that bitter father and a form that fell in vast and shapeless folds. Thus the temptation of hate grew, and shadowed the growing child, gliding stealthily into his laughter, fading into his play, and seizing his dreams by day and night with rough, rude turbulence. So the black boy asked of sky and sun and flower that never answered why, and he loved, as he grew, neither the world nor the world's rough ways. Strange temptation for a child, you might think, and yet in this wide land today, a thousand thousand dark children brew before this same temptation and fill its cold and shuddering arms. For them, perhaps, 
Someone will say, one day, lift the veil. We'll come tenderly and cheerily into those sad little lives and brush the brooding hate away. Just as Beriah Green strode in upon the life of Alexander Crummel. And before the bluff, kind-hearted man, the shadows seemed less dark. Beriah Green had a school in Oneida County, New York, with a score of mischievous boys. Quote, I'm going to bring a black boy here to educate, end quote, said Beriah Green, as only a crank and an abolitionist would have dared to say. Quote, oh ho, end quote, laughed the boys. Quote, ye, ye yes, end quote, said his wife, and Alexander Kane. Once before, the black boy had sought a school, had traveled, cold and hungry, 400 miles up into free New Hampshire to Canaan. But the godly farmers hitched 90 yoke of oxen to the abolition schoolhouse and dragged it into the middle of the swamp. The black boy trudged away. The 19th was the first century of human sympathy, the age when half-wonderingly we began to decry in others that transfigured spark of divinity which we call myself. When clodhoppers and peasants and tramps and thieves and millionaires and, sometimes, Negroes, became throbbing souls whose warm, pulsing life touched us so nearly that we have gasped with surprise, crying, quote, Thou too? Hast thou seen sorrow in the dull waters of hopelessness? Hast thou known life? End quote. And then all helplessly we peered into those other worlds and wailed, quote, O world of worlds, how shall man make you one? End quote. So in that little Oneida school, there came to these, excuse me. So in that little Oneida school, there came to those schoolboys a revelation of thought and longing beneath one black skin, of which they had not dreamed before. And to the lonely boy came a new dawn of sympathy and inspiration. The shadowy, formless thing, the temptation of hate that hovered between him and the world, grew fainter and less sinister. It did not wholly fade away but diffused itself and lingered thick at the edges. Through it, the child now first saw the blue and gold of life, the sun-swept road that ran twixt heaven and earth until in one far-off wand wavering line they met and kissed. A vision of life came to the growing boy, mystic, wonderful. He raised his head, stretched himself, breathed deep, fresh air. Yonder, behind the forest, he heard strange sounds. Then glinting through the trees, he saw, far, far away, the bronzed host of a nation calling, calling faintly, calling loudly. He heard the hateful clank of their chains. He felt them cringe and grovel, and there rose within him a protest and a prophecy, and he guarded himself to walk down the world. So let's have a reflection here. Uh, I I think that one of the first things that comes to mind when reflecting on the passages we just read is that the experience that Du Du Bois is pointing out right now is the same experience that in the previous chapter, his own child that he had gave, uh, that him and his wife brought into the world was robbed of this experience, this this experience for a, a young black child in this world to, or this a young black child in that time period in that in, a, in the United States of America to become conscious, conscious of the 
fact that he's black and he's living in a white world to become conscious of the veil that uh, Du Bois is, uh, has been articulating and speaking about and communicating to us about throughout multiple chapters. He speaks about how it, it planted seeds of hatred in his heart and, or how the first, you know, the, he's, you know, he does, he describes hatred in a different way, but essentially he talks about how these experiences planted seeds of hatred in this child's heart. And what that makes me think of is how many times when you go back and you hear black people from generations past speak about growing up and coming to adulthood and co- or not even coming to adulthood, but coming into being a, a preteen and becoming a teenager and, you know, going into adulthood, those first experiences with racism and those first experiences with prejudice and those first experiences with discrimination and how those experiences shape how their perspective of the world and their view of the world. Uh, one of the common themes that I have seen when I've been going back and reading autobiographies or biographies from people is they speak about their uh, they speak about their parents talking to having to talk with them the first time about what it meant to be black, whether that was what it meant to be black in 2020s or whether that's what it meant to be black in the 2000s or what it meant to be black in the 60s or what it meant to be black in the 30, 1930s or what it meant to be black during Reconstruction or even what it meant to be black when it went uh, during slavery, that there is this moment where you have to sort of prematurely take this innocence from a child whether it's uh, an adult doing it or a parent doing it, or if it's the world itself doing it, taking this innocence from a child earlier because of them being black or because of them being a black woman and having to expose them to the realities of the world. And, uh, and so, but one of the other things that has happened is that you can specifically Dr. King comes to mind. Dr. King talked about how the first, when he went to college and left, Georgia and went to college in the North, that it was that experience with white people in seminary school changed his perspective of white people. And we see here in the story of Alexander Crummel, it's when he is given some type of access to these things that have been reserved for white people that he begins to loosen some of that hate, that he begin that it begins to lift off of him some. And but it, it seems we're also pointing, getting to the place of him him learning, him gaining that education, realizing that some of the shackles that have been taken off of him from being able to go and learn, or that maybe not on him because he lives in the North, that those shackles still exist on people that look like him who live in the South. And that is a, another form of, of the consciousness happening is understanding that this is what's happening to you because you're black. And then understanding the community and the people that you're from and what they're, what you're experiencing as a collective while being black. A voice and vision called him to be a priest, a seer to lead the uncalled out of the house of bondage. He saw the headless host turn toward him like the whirling of mad waters. He stretched forth his hands eagerly. And then even as he stretched them, suddenly there swept across the vision, the temptation of despair. They were not wicked men. The problem of life is not the problem of the wicked. They were calm, good men, bishops of the apostolic church of God, and strove toward righteousness. They said slowly, quote, It is all very natural. It is even commendable. But the general theological seminary of the Episcopal Church cannot admit a Negro. End quote. And when that thin, half-grotesque figure still haunted their doors, they put their hands kindly, 
half sorrowfully on his shoulders and said, quote, Now, of course we, we know how you feel about it. But you see, it's impossible that that is, well, it is premature. Sometime we trust, sincerely trust, all such distinctions will fade away. But now the world is as it is, end quote. This was the temptation of despair, and the young man fought it doggedly. Like some grave shadow, he flitted by those halls, pleading, arguing, half angrily demanding admittance, until there came the final no. Until men hustled the disturber away, marked him as foolish, unreasonable, and injudicious, a vain rebel against God's law. And then from that vision splendid, all the glory faded slowly away and left an earth gray and stern rolling on beneath the dark despair. Even the kind hands that stretched themselves toward him from out the depths of that dull morning seemed but parts of the purple shadows. He saw them coldly and asked, quote, Why should I strive by special grace when the way of the world is closed to me? End quote. All gently yet, the hands urged him on, the hands of young John Jay, that daring father's daring son, the hands of the good folk of Boston, that free city. And yet, with the way to the priesthood of the church open at last before him, the cloud lingered there. And even when old St. Paul's venerable bishop raised his white arms above the Negro deacon, even then the burden had not lifted from that heart, for there had passed the glory from the earth. And yet the fire through which Alexander Crummel went did not burn in vain. Slowly and more soberly, he took up again his plan of life. More critically, he studied the situation. Deep down below the slavery and servitude of the Negro people, he saw their fatal weakness, which long years of mistreatment had emphasized. The dearth of strong moral character, of unbending righteousness, he felt, was their great shortcoming. And here he would begin. He would gather the best of his people into some little Episcopal chapel and there lead, teach, and inspire them. To the leaven spread, to the children grew, to the world hearkened, till, till, and then across his dream gleamed some faint afterglow of that first fair vision of youth, only an afterglow, for there had passed the glory from the earth. One day, <clears throat> It was in 1842, and the springtide was struggling merrily with the May winds of New England. He stood at last in his own chapel in Providence, a priest of the church. The day sped by, and the dark young clergyman labored. He wrote his sermons carefully. He intoned his prayers with a soft, earnest voice. He haunted the streets and accosted the wayfarers. He visited the sick and knelt beside the dying. He worked and toiled, week by week day by day, month by month. And yet month by month, the congregation dwindled. Week by week, the hollow walls echoed more sharply. Day by day, the calls came fewer and fewer. And day by day, the third temptation sat clearer and still more clearly within the veil. A temptation, as it were, bland and smiling, with just a shade of mockery in its smooth tones. First it came casually, in the cadence of a voice, quote, Oh, color folks? Yes, end quote. Or perhaps more definitely, quote, what do you expect? End quote. And voiced in gesture, 
lay the doubt, the temptation of doubt, how he hated it and stormed at it furiously. Quote, of course they are capable. He cried, quote, of course they can learn and strive and achieve, end quote, and, quote, of course, end quote, added the temptation softly, quote, they do nothing of the sort, end quote. Of all the three temptations, this one struck the deepest. Hate, he had outgrown so childish a thing. Despair, he had steeled his right arm against it and fought it with the vigor of determination. But to doubt the worth of life, to doubt the worth of his life work, to doubt the destiny and capability of the race his soul loved because it was his, to find listless squalor instead of eager endeavor, to hear his own lips whispering, quote, they do not care, they cannot know, they are dumb-driven cattle. Why cast your pearls before swine? End quote. This, this seemed more than man could bear, and he closed the door and sank upon the steps of the chancel and cast his robe upon the floor and writhed. So what stands out to me from the passages that we just read, first is the, the feeling of, hmm, I'm trying to find the exact word that they used. Uh, one second, bear with me. Despair. No, not despair. The doubt, the doubt of his worth, the doubting of the worth of his life work. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Okay. And so they didn't use a singular word for that. I thought it was a singular word they used. It might have been a singular word at the very beginning when they talked about the three battles that he would uh endure in the in the story they're about to tell us. However, <clears throat> the him, the feeling that he had that what it was he was striving for, he wasn't going to be able to succeed. The feeling that he had that the people that he was trying to strive to liberate, the people he's trying to strive to to educate, to uh to to minister to, to to try to, to uplift, to empower the feeling that one, that they weren't working in coordination with him to do it. And that B, it may not be possible for him to do it because they don't have the capacity for it to be done. And something that stands out to me or that I think of regularly whenever I begin to feel this way or whenever I hear someone else begin to feel this way, because this is a common feeling or emotion that somebody from specifically trying to organize in the black community, trying to uh, build in the black community, trying to lead in the black community. These are things that are, are commonly felt the feeling that the, that is, is something inherently about black people in the United States that makes it so that they can't work together or that they can't come together or that they can't be organized or that they uh, can't be led or that they can't get to these things. They, they can't become conscious or they can't become educated. And those things all stem from racist ideology. They all stem from white supremacist ideology. And 
I want I remember Stokely Carmichael said the reason, and I don't know actually I shouldn't say Stokely Carmichael said this or Kwame Ture. I shouldn't say he said this. I don't know for sure. But there was a a black man giving a speech from the civil rights era, civil rights movement era, the black power era, and they spoke about how the reason that they tell that the they tell black people they okay, excuse me, that because the system and because white America and uh, white supremacists, people with white supremacist ideologies don't want black people to be able to come together and work together. They push out the idea that black people can't work together or come together. They push out this stereotype that black people aren't able to come together or work together because they don't want black people to be educated, because they don't want black people to be organized, because they don't want black people uh, to be knowledgeable. They push out the stereotype and they, they push out the prejudice that black people uh inherently can't be organized or that they inherently can't come together or that they inherently can't become educated. And it is very tempting when you are in the process of trying to uplift the people who have been marginalized and subjugated to and exploited to when things aren't going in the, in the, with the progression that you want to feel as if it's something about the people that you're trying to put together or that you're trying to organize that is keeping this from happening. When you look and you see other groups of people or other nationalities that have come together, that have organized, or that have built themselves up economically or built themselves up politically in this country. But what's always important to remember in that situation is that the reason it is such a difficult task to organize, it's such a difficult task to uh, to to educate, to liberate, is because of the extreme levels that they went to to divide us the extreme levels that they went to to uneducate us to disenfranchise us and then i think the last thing is um and then the last thing is this we we read in sister citizen how stereotypes have the residual effect of shame that comes from them. And we read how when you see yourself through the eyes of your people, whether it's in a, you see us, no matter that when you see yourself through the eyes of your people, the same way that you can be empowered by seeing somebody who looks like you do something that is great. You can also sometimes be uh, discouraged or you can be disheartened by seeing somebody or ashamed by seeing somebody who looks like you not do as well. And that pendulum swings to the extreme the further back you go when in America for black people, when, you know, Alexander Crummel is the exception to the rule. And so everywhere he looks and all of his experiences reiterate to him the stereotypes and the shame that have been stigmatized with black people. And so those are just all things that stand out to me as we were reading those passages. The evening sunbeams had to set the dust, excuse me, the evening sunbeams had set the dust to dancing in the gloomy chapel when he arose. He folded his vestments, put away the hymn books, and closed the great Bible. He stepped out into the twilight, looked back upon the narrow little pulpit with a weary smile, and locked the door. Then he walked briskly to the bishop and told the bishop what the bishop already knew. Quote, I have failed, end quote. He said simply. And gaining courage by the confession, he added, quote, 
What I need is a larger constituency. There are comparatively few Negroes here, and perhaps they are not of the best. I must go where the field is wider and try again, end quote. So the bishop sent him to Philadelphia with a letter to Bishop Odenkirk. Anderdonk? Okay, not Odenkirk. Anderdonk. Bishop Anderdonk. Bishop Anderdonk lived at the head of the six white steps, corpulent, red-faced, and the author of several thrilling tracks on a postalistic succession. It was after dinner, and the bishop had settled himself for a pleasant season of contemplation when the bell must needs ring, and there must burst in upon the bishop a letter and a thin, ungainly negro. Bishop Andendark read the letter hastily and frowned. Fortunately, his mind was already clear on this point, and he cleared his brow and looked at Crummel. Then he said, slowly and impressively, quote, I will receive you into this diocese on one condition. No Negro priest can sit in my church convention, and no Negro church must ask for representation there. End quote. I sometimes fancy I can see that table. The frail black figure, nervously twitching his hat before the massive abdomen of Bishop Andendark. His threadbare coat thrown against the dark woodwork of the bookcases, where Fox's, quote, lives of the martyrs, end quote, nestled happily beside, quote, the whole duty of man, end quote. I seem to see the wide eyes of the Negro wander past the bishop's broadcloth to where the swinging glass doors of the cabinet glow in the sunlight. A little blue fly is trying to cross the yawning keyhole. He marches briskly up to it, peers into the chasm in a surprised sort of way, and rubs his feelers reflectively. Then he essays its depths and, finding it bottomless, draws back again. The dark-faced priest finds himself wondering if the fly, too, has faced his valley of humiliation and if it will plunge into it. When, lo, it spreads its tiny wings and buzzes merrily across, leaving the watcher wingless and alone. Then the full weight of this burden fell upon him. The rich walls wheeled away, and before him lay the cold, rough moor winding on through life, cut in twain by one thick granite ridge. Here the valley of humiliation, yonder the valley of the shadow of death, and I know not which be darker, no not. But this I know, in yonder vale of the humble stand today a million swarthy men who willingly would, quote, bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, end quote. All this and more would they bear did they but know that this were sacrifice and not a meaner thing. So surged the thought within that lone black breast. The bishop cleared his throat suggestively, then, recollecting that there was really nothing to say, considerately said nothing, only sat tapping his foot impatiently. But Alexander Crummel, said, slowly and heavily, quote, I will never enter your diocese on such terms, end quote. And saying this, he turned and passed into the valley of the shadow of death. You might have noted only the physical dying, the shattered frame and hacking cough, 
But in that soul lay deeper death than that. He found a chapel in New York, the church of his father. He labored for it in poverty and starvation, scorned by his fellow priests. Half in despair, he wandered across the sea, a beggar with outstretched hands. Half in despair, he wandered across the sea, a beggar with outstretched hands. Englishmen clasped him, Wilberforce and Stanley, Thurwell and Ingalls, and even Froud and McCute and McCulley. Sir Benjamin Brody bade him rest a while at Queen's College in Cambridge, and there he lingered, struggling for health of body and mind, until he took his degree in 53. Restless still and unsatisfied, he, tur he turned toward Africa, and for long years, amid the spawn of the slave smugglers, sought a new heaven and a new earth. So the man groped for light. All this was not life. It was the world wandering of a soul in search of itself, the striving of one who vainly sought his place in the world, ever haunted by the shadow of a death that is more than death, the passing of a soul that has missed its duty. Twenty years he wandered, twenty years and more, and yet the hard, rasping question kept gnawing within him, quote, what in God's name am I on earth for, end quote. In the narrow New York parish, his soul seemed cramped and smothered. In the fine old air of the English university, he heard the millions wailing over the sea. In the wild, fever-cursed swamps of West Africa, he stood helpless and alone. You will not wonder at his weird pilgrimage, you who in the swift world of living, amid his cold paradox and marvelous vision, have fronted life and asked this riddle face to face. And if you find that riddle hard to read, remember that yonder black boy finds it just a little harder. If it is difficult for you to find and face your duty, it is a shade more difficult for him. If your heart sickens in the blood and dust of battle, remember that to him the dust is thicker and the battle fiercer. No wonder the wanderers fall. No wonder we point to thief and murderer and haunting prostitute and the never-ending throng of unhearsed dead. The valley of the shadow of death gives few, its gives few of its pilgrims back to the world. <clears throat> but Alexander Crummel, it gave back. Out of the temptation of hate and burned by the fire of despair, triumphant over doubt and steeled by sacrifice against humiliation, he turned at last home across the waters, humble and strong, gentle and determined. He with that rare courtesy which, which is the armor of pure souls. He fought among his own, the low, the grasping, and the wicked, with that unbending righteousness which is the sword of the just. He never faltered. He seldom complained. He simply worked, inspiring the young, rebuking the old, helping the weak, guiding the strong. So he grew and brought within his wide influence all that was best of those who walk within the veil. They who live without knew not nor dreamed of that full power within, that mighty inspiration which the dull gauze of caste decreed that most men should not know. And now that he is gone, I sweep the veil away and cry, Lo, the soul to whose dear memory I bring this little tribute. I can see his face still, dark and heavy lined beneath the snowy hair, 
lighting and shading, now with inspiration for the future, now in innocent pain and some human wickedness, now with sorrow and some hard memory from the past. The more I met Alexander Crummel, the more I felt how much that world was losing which knew him so little. In another age, he might have sat among the elders of the land in purple-bordered toga. In another country, mothers might have sung him to the cradles. He did his work. He did it nobly and well. And yet I sorrowed that here he worked alone with so little human sympathy. His name today, in this broad land, means little and comes to 50 million ears laden with no instance of memory or emulation. And herein lies the tragedy of the age. Not that men are poor. All men know something of poverty. Not that men are wicked. Who is good? Not that men are ignorant. What is truth? Nay, but that men know so little of men. He sat one morning gazing toward the sea. He smiled and said, quote, The gate is rusty on the hinges, end quote. That night at starrise, a wind came moaning out of the west to blow the gate ajar. And then the soul I loved fled like a flame across the seas. And in his seat sat death. I wonder where he is today. I wonder if in that dim world beyond, as he came gliding in, there rose on some wine throne a king, a dark and pierced Jew, who knows the writhings of the earthly damned, saying, as he laid those heart-wrung talents down, quote, well done, end quote, while round about the morning stars sat singing. And that brings us to the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, which I, oh, we got two chapters left, so that brings us to the second to last chapter. And the passage that, and in the passages that we just read, what stands out to me the most is, when the boy points out to the reader that, and this is something that we just have sort of spoke about, I think maybe on a, one or two episodes previous, the fact that the struggles that everybody has to deal with in this life, the, the battles that we all have to wage, the tribulations that we all endure in this life are compounded for people at who are from marginalized communities. It's even compounded even more for people at different intersections in those marginalized communities. And so in here, when Du Bois points out that all of these things that the reader has struggled with when it comes to dealing with life, when it comes to finding their place in the world, when it comes to finding what you're, you're meant to be, what you're meant to do, remember that black people struggle with that. Black men, he says, but black people struggle with these same things at an even and and even more because of the fact that they are black. And I think that sometimes that's something that's hard for somebody to be able to accept. People don't want to think that just because somebody's black, it means their life is harder than theirs or they've dealt with more than them because they feel like it discounts what they've went through. When in reality, it just is acknowledging the realities of the situation that each of us have our own unique experiences. But within those experiences, there are certain groups of people who have to deal with things that other groups don't have to deal with. And because of the country we are in, some of those groups of people who have to deal with other things that other groups of people don't have to deal with are because of things they can't control. It's because of their skin. It's because of their gender. It's because of uh, where they were born or the, the amount of money that their parents had, you know, 
And so I just think that that was what stood out to me the most in that section. And again, this was another great chapter by W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, Going to have to find another book of his to throw in our rotation for our Rob for Reading Daily. So we're over our 30-minute mark, so I'm going to wrap this episode up. Please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And remember to be on the lookout for new episodes of Rob for Reading Daily coming out on a daily basis to provide you the opportunity to begin or further your journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow.